This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Okay, well, welcome to our podcast on the chronic valvular insufficiency, when to intervene, particularly when the patient has no symptoms. And with me today, I have a good, very good friend. Uh, he's director of the cath lab and director of the interventional and structural program at the University of Alabama and uh, Mustafa Ahmed. Mustafa, uh, thank you for taking the time and uh, particularly on this beautiful Sunday evening, five o'clock, maybe that should be like our supper club here, getting together and uh, discuss cardiology you know, topics. So Mustafa, today we're going to talk about the leaky valves, particularly when patients have no symptoms. Um, do you see that often in, uh, in your patient population? Yeah, thanks for setting this up and really good to be uh, back doing this with you again. And so, yes, uh, leaky valves are extraordinarily common. And there's, um, there's some basic things about leaky valves which haven't changed over the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And then there's many advancements which have been made, some of which we can discuss today in determining, you know, what is the consequence? What does it mean if someone has a leaky valve? And I think one of the most important things to, uh, to get across, particularly to any patients listening, is there's some leaky valves which need something doing about. But just because people have an echo with a leaky valve, sometimes it will say trace, or sometimes it will say trivial, or sometimes it will say mild. And I encourage every patient, um, rather than go and worry about, gosh, I've got this echo report and what's happening, my valves are leaky and I think something's gonna happen. In the vast majority of those cases, there's no cause for concern. And it's just something to discuss upfront with the cardiologist, because many of these very mildly or tracely leaky valves, we just see as normal. And that's something really, I think, important to just start, start the podcast with in case any patients are listening. And, and of course, many of the situations we're going to be talking about today are for you know, very severely or moderate to severely leaky valves. Very good. So uh, today we'll try to concentrate on two valves in particular. Uh, number one, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the aortic valve uh, that is uh, leaking. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit what causes the valve to leak, uh, what, how do we actually evaluate these valves, and uh, as we use the heart team approach, how do we actually uh, decide which one or, or when to intervene you know, on the leaky valve. We'll start with the aortic valve, and then we'll finish with the mitral valve. So let's get started, Mustafa. Uh, let's talk about the aortic valve uh, when it's leaking and the patient is asymptomatic. What causes the valve to leak? Yes. So two important types of leak to distinguish from now. And one is of someone's own valve. So if you're born with your valve and that starts to leak. The other one, which we see increasingly commonly since people are living longer and more operations are being done and there's different ways of repairing the valve and replacing the valve is when a artificial valve leaks. And with an artificial valve, sometimes that leaks in the valve and sometimes that leaks around the valve. So there's your native valve and artificial valve. So we'll start with the native valve. So the normal valve, uh, aortic valve, has three 
cusps. They're like three doors that fit together. And when they're closed, every time the heart finishes beating, um, they stop blood from coming back into the heart, the aortic valve. So every time the heart beats, it, it has to go through the aortic valve to the body. And then it goes to the body and goes to where it's needed. Now, when the aortic valve closes, that again prevents blood going back into the heart. And so many different causes of leak, but let's just start with natural wear and tear over time. The most common way in which the valve deteriorates is when we get into you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, most, most commonly, the aortic valve can become tight. That's known as stenosis. That's when calcium builds up on the valve. But sometimes that the way the calcium builds up and the way the valve is kind of uh, reacts to that, that can lead to leak. So that's just degeneration over time, usually in combination with a tight valve, there can be some leak. Now, there are other valves which earlier in life can start to leak. Some of those are what we know as bicuspid valves. So bicuspid valves, again, probably pretty more uh, known to people in the setting of being tight, but those valves earlier in life can become a little bit leaky, and that's when the valve has two opening, two doors instead of three, and that's known as bicuspid. And when we're looking at valves that start to leak early, there's a few things. There's problems with the valve itself, and then there's problems with the structures that hold the valve in place. So what holds the valve in place typically is the aorta. The aorta is a large blood vessel which kind of supplies blood to all the body. And the aortic valve is the gateway at the beginning of the aorta, but it's held in the aorta. And sometimes in people, due to various different processes, sometimes genetic, sometimes extremely high blood pressure, and sometimes unknown factors or tear in the wall, but sometimes those aortas become very wide, known as dilation or aneurysm. And when the aorta dilates and forms an aneurysm, particularly right at the very beginning, that pulls the valve structure itself apart, and that can lead to leak over time. And then other things to think about are Every now and then, um, people get something known as cusp or one of the doors prolapses. And again, that's an anatomic abnormality that one of the doors just becomes leaky and decides to fling open in the opposite kind of direction and stops blood. And, and what used to stop blood going through is now a wide open uh, passage for blood to go through. And so there's problems with the valve itself. There's problems with the aorta. There's wear and tear over time. And then another important one uh, is infection. Sometimes the valve itself can build infection on it. It's known as endocarditis. And that can just eat away sometimes at the valve uh, cusps, the doors of the valves called the cusps themselves. And that leads to holes or weaknesses in the valve that leads to a leak also. So those are the kind of main uh, causes uh, of valve uh, regurgitation that we see uh, um, over the different stages of life. Very good. Let's talk a little bit about how do we evaluate the uh, the severity of the uh, aorta, the leakage of the aortic valve. When I started my echo uh, days, you know, it seemed like M mode uh, was just starting in the 70s and then the 80s. Finally, we had 2D echo in the beginning um, of uh, color Doppler. How has it changed since that time? What are the tools we have at our disposition now today? Great question. And so let's talk about what's not changed. What used to be critical is the stethoscope. And many people now are willing to 
you know, forego the use of dyslexia. But I will tell you, I see at least a few patients every month where the patient has been told they may have moderate or lower regurgitation. But the physical exam, just putting a stethoscope on the chest and hearing just that classic murmur, you know, of aortic insufficiency, sometimes musical, sometimes blowing. And that makes you think, I don't believe my echo. And it's really critical to get this across. If, if the signs and symptoms and the things you're seeing in the heart and things that aren't making sense, but the valve itself doesn't seem to explain it, but you hear what you think is a severely leaky valve, that is an indication for escalation of imaging. Um, and it's amazing the amount of examples we had. We actually published on that a few years ago. And in the setting of a valve clinic, we see it frequently. And so with the, being the people with access to some of the most advanced imaging modalities in the world, the stethoscope is, is, keeps a, just a critical role in that. So let's go beyond the stethoscope to echo. So echo is the cornerstone of imaging. And let's start with the 2D echo, the normal uh, echo that's done on the surface of the heart, the transthoracic study where you go and they put ultrasound gel on and, and on your chest and have a look. So what we're looking for there is first things like color. So it's one other thing I'll get across is um, when these things are being suggested, you know, we have the luxury in our clinic of having structural tests. And so really, all ultrasounds are not created equal. Uh, when there's an issue and things are heard, it's important for the people doing the scan to really go the extra mile to look at the valve, because particularly with leaky valves, when they're known as eccentric, so where the leak is off and off to the side, it can be severe, but it can be easily missed. So those are other things to, uh, to have a careful review of the study yourself. So when we look at color, um, color, which has been around since you know, decades now, that color Doppler still holds a very important place. Um, it, we're basically looking at patterns of color which uh, recognize blood flow coming back into the heart using Doppler, uh, one of the physics principles that underlies some of the analysis done by ECHO. And really, you're looking at how much color is coming back, what the color pattern looks like, how much uh, width in the outflow tract of the um, ventricle that, that it covers, and also just how bad does this look? Like, is that, Does it look like it's wide open and color's coming back? So one of the important things is that um, quantification by echo, so being exact to the milliliter by echo on the leak, isn't as straightforward as some of the other modalities we'll talk about in a minute, but echo is very widely available. Echo is a realistic screening screen for, for most of the United States, if we, if we stick to the United States. Um, and that in combination with a stethoscope is, is what's used to make most of the diagnosis. Now, also, well, if we've got a leak of the heart, the importance is to look at the heart itself. What is happening? If a lot of uh, blood is leaking back into the heart, that blood has to have somewhere to go. Now, if that happens all of a sudden, let's just imagine one of the cusps of the valve suddenly on someone prolapsed and the leak started immediately. You're not going to see an increase in the heart size. But what you are going to see is a patient that's almost dying and that needs immediate medical care. And th those are not the chronic long-standing patients that we're talking about here. So when you have a long-standing leak, the heart is smart like any other organ in the body. What the heart says is, gosh, I'm having this extra blood come back in. I'm going to have to grow in a pattern to accommodate this blood, but also to continue to pump the blood forward. What we see in aortic insufficiency is a very unique kind of pressure overload called mixed pressure volume overload. 
So some things lead to volume coming back in the heart. Some things lead to pressure. Unlike other valves, the aortic valve, when it leaks, leads a volume and pressure. The pressure is because it has to pump against the aorta. The volume, because the blood is coming back into the heart. So unlike other forms of hypertrophy where the heart will just get bigger, like the mitral valve, for example, and not necessarily be able to accommodate pressure, the aortic, the ventricle and the aortic valve grows in something called mixed, eccentric, and concentric hypertrophy, which sounds doesn't sound like how both those can happen at once. But basically, the heart gets bigger, the volume, the chambers of the heart get larger over time. But unlike in other patterns where the heart wall gets thinner, the heart wall in aortic insufficiency remains thick or can grow even thicker. So what we're looking for on the echo is chamber size. If the normal chamber size when the heart relaxes is 40, we may say that go 50, 60, even 70, in some cases of aortic insufficiency. Whereas the walls won't become super thin, the walls will still allow uh, pumping forward. And for this reason, because the heart accommodates both without failing early, in aortic insufficiency, the leak is handled often very, very well for a very long time. And you don't need to necessarily jump in immediately on a leak aortic valve and fix that, particularly if there's no other pressing factors. So we're looking at the heart, we're looking at the valves, the way the valves are by tricuspid, we're looking at the aorta by echo, and we're looking at the heart and its chambers and some of the pressures. So that takes out transthoracic echo. Particularly when you make your decision, uh, you know, whether you should intervene, I'm sure you meet with the surgeon and the heart team approach. What kind of um, uh, echocardiographic, you know, criteria or, or what, what do you look at, you know, to tell you, that the heart is starting to decompensate, uh, the, the heart is losing its mechanism to compensate for this volume yeah. load. Um, yes. So um, let's get a little more advanced with the transthoracic echo. And so things we have now, which we didn't have before, are ways of looking at the microstructure and the pumping of that of the heart, known as strain, or known as uh, different individual tracking patterns. So what that allows you to do is, historically, we've looked at something called ejection fraction. That just tells you how the heart's pumping, how much percentage. What that doesn't tell you is, is the heart wall feeling? Is it weak? Your heart can still have a normal ejection fraction, but it could be twice as large. And although it could be pumping blood forward, there could be early signs of weakness that aren't seen until heart failure develops or until the ejection fraction itself goes down. So we can look at more novel patterns, such as strain rate imaging and other strain patterns of imaging. Uh, tissue characteristic uh, patterns, and they can provide early. Now, those are being incorporated by many places. We look at things like global longitudinal strain, local deformation patterns. Those things are being used by places to at least champion research for early surgery, or at least to provide collateral information to justify going for early surgery. So if you see someone with a transthoracic echo, they're having some early mild symptoms, and you're wondering, gosh, are these related to the valve? A heart chamber this large, particularly as it gets towards 60, 70 millimeters end diastole, or more than you know, 40, 45 uh, systole, that kind of thing. Those numbers are the guidelines are slow to catch up with what contemporary work is in those things. And if we're seeing a very large leak, and or if we're seeing a dilation of the aorta, so an aneurysm that would need repairing in its own right, plus just symptoms. Sometimes you won't see the huge severity of aortic insufficiency, but you'll see symptoms. So that's in taken together with aortic insufficiency that is severe or approaching severe would lead to a leak. But let's talk about how we actually do it.
So let's say once we see the echo and we're concerned, a couple of tests that we're going to get to really confirm things. So if I'm following someone for years over time and they've got a leak aortic valve, I'm going to almost inevitably get an MRI scan. Why is that? An MRI scan can calculate to the milliliter much more reproducibly and with lower kind of numbers needed for reproducibility to show you chamber size and degree of leak. So when we talk about quantification, an MRI can start to tell you just by looking, of course, everything's limited, and this is in a, you know, in a perfect picture, but um, the MRI can tell you exact chamber sizes, the heart wall thickness over time, and can also tell you uh, the, the milliliters leaking. So if an MRI says there's a, you know, over half the blood or 50% regurgitant fraction, so all, this much of the blood pumped out is coming back, and this is the size of the chambers, and also accurate quantification of the aorta. That's something we use. So if you've got moderate plus aortic insufficiency and we are following you along every year, we will inevitably get, inevitably get an MRI every year or at least other year to look for progress. And things that make you a little more close to follow someone are rapid rate of change over time. So if you're seeing someone and they've gone from having, you know, the chamber size or, you know, increased by 15% or 20% as opposed to just a few and the walls getting the heart chamber size overall enlarging and the degree of leak increasing and the aorta dilating, that's something which we'll watch even closer, maybe at six months. Or we'll tell the patient, hey, will symptoms develop? Or sometimes we'll just walk them on a treadmill and find out if symptoms are associated with that. Another thing is a CT scan, which can be used to look at the aorta. Uh, I'm not going to go into that as much today, but that does have a role in the aortic valve, particularly calcium, local structures and, and uh, those things. And then there's a more advanced echo called the TEE, a camera test that goes down the heart. We will often do that early once we've made the diagnosis of aortic insufficiency. That can show you more local factors of the valve. But here's where that becomes important. The treatment options, which we'll talk about in a while, may include aortic valve repair in very specialist centers. And so nailing the anatomy using TEE with 3D enhancement often can help us make the decision on repairability of the valve. And finally is cath, a heart catheterization done, where yes, we often look at the arteries to see if any different kind of management would be needed, but we will measure the pressure in the heart um, called the end diastolic pressure and the wedge pressures on the right heart cath. And those can be early signs of a failing heart. So lots of different modalities we've talked about to there, uh, there today, but those are the mainstay of what we use to evaluate someone's aortic valve um, and, and in a more nuanced fashion. So we're looking at regurgitation. We're looking at detailed anatomy. We're looking at collateral evidence of the heart. And, then, and those can include chambers, sizes. And then we're looking at other collateral information, such as pressures. And of course, really champion, not echo, but symptoms. The detailed history, often allied adjunct things, such as a treadmill used, even speaking to family members often, has this person slowed down? Those things taken together govern the decision to go to surgery. Sounds good. It looks like um, when you talk about the evaluation of the function of the heart to make sure the heart is not starting to decompensate, uh, you go to the strain and then you go to the MRI. Do you use much uh, 3D EF? Yes. So 3D EF, uh, we try and do a standard. Now, 3D is only as good as 2D. So one thing we tell all patients with... Um, or, uh, with, or our text, sorry, with the insufficiency is, you know, we're very early to use something called Definity. 
Definity is a contrast medium which really makes accuracy of transthoracic echo a notch above. And so we use that actually in all of our structural patients when possible. And that can give you a very realistic 2D EF uh, based on extrapolated off different chambers. Now we use 3D, but you've got to have relatively pristine and then, uh, images to be able to do 3D transthoracic imaging. And we use something called uh, algorithms like the heart model. And so there's very nice strain or tissue tracking patterns of the endocardial border that are now used to really make EF much more reproducible and accurate by echo. And th that's important when using echo because that can often change in different places between different, you know, uh, the way it's done. And then when, when we do TTE, TEE, sorry, transesophageal echo, we use 3D imaging on everyone. So everyone by, by definition uh, for coming for a structural evaluation has to have a 3D EF by TEE. Now TEE, we don't, you know, we don't necessarily want to repeat that on a patient each year because it is a mildly invasive test, but that's where MRI is kind of champion. MRI can use, you know, uh, not just summated, but also tissue methods of, uh, or tracking methods uh, to ca accurately calculate EF and, and look at that. You know, we used to um, have some M-mode echo criteria, you know, to tell the <laughs> heart was good. You, you still use those, like your end diastolic dimension is greater than 70, and systolic dimension greater than 50 millimeters, or, or is it gone to the, uh, to the archives now of medicine? <laughs> so different things changing. Um, there is still a role for those. Again, the guidelines are yet to fully catch up because it's difficult to get the class one evidence needed often for guidelines to base, you know, to, to put their head on the line for those. And so, yes, we still do use uh, dimensions. Um, 70 was the old cutoff, uh, aortic insufficiency, sometimes 65. Um, and then the same, like you said, 40 or 50 or something like that for the end systolic. I will tell you that in this day and age, it's very, it's not often you're finding a, a youngish patient that's active, that's going to tolerate getting to that kind of level. When I look at those levels and think, People will follow with those for years. That's interesting to see because we rarely see someone getting to that range with a watchful waiting. The other thing is we used to have to justify, gosh, if you're going to operate on someone, you want a very good reason to do it. But the truth about operative mortality in specialist centers for valves that are looking at the valve is you're looking at often way less than 0.5% or 0.1% sometimes. You know, So when you're thinking about that, suddenly what you, goes on the table for you to evaluate is, gosh, I don't want to make the wrong decision that's going to send my patient to irreversible heart failures for the next 50 years because I'm waiting for some kind of uh, uh, thing to be felt when I know that operatively we have surgeons that have done thousands of these or uh, whatever intervention it is. Um, and then we'll have a more new, you know, let's get on the treadmill. Let's really look to see if you're symptomatic. Let's really find out if your life's being affected and you're more comfortable going a little earlier. So yes, those M-mode things are still used, but they are very subject to the angle, to the size, to loading conditions, to, to just so many different things that they are, it used to be just that, is this dimension this. Now that's one of 20 different things that goes into a uh, decision uh, about a valve and also lifetime management of the valve. If someone is pregnant, if someone is of childbearing age, if someone is in their 30s and doesn't want to have an artificial valve and you would put a mechanical and they want to wait and you're thinking of all these lifelong decisions, um, those all go into the decision too. So with younger people, sometimes there's an advantage to waiting until you really feel that it's needed if they're asymptomatic. 
Well, now we are to, uh, you know, the, our team approach is gathered. And of course, we don't have a surgeon on board with us today, but I guess the treatment is really uh, surgery, you know, whether you replace the valve or sometimes you can repair, you know, occasionally in some of these uh, uh, leaky valves of the involving the aortic valve. Um, I guess we probably should do a podcast just on that. What kind of valve or what kind of surgery yeah. we're doing, you know, for the leaky valve. Well, uh, thank you, Mustafa. We've really kind of uh, talked about this um, aortic valve regurgitation uh, that is chronic in patients with no symptoms. We've talked about the, some of the reasons for the, the valve to leak. We talked about the aorta when, when it's enlarged, like in Marfan or with other pathology associated like bicuspid valve. Uh, we, we discuss uh, some of the non-invasive evaluation of the severity of that leakage and how the heart is able to adapt and uh, compensate for this extra load. And finally, um, when to operate, you know, uh, when can we repair, when can we replace uh, some of the criteria uh, that we discussed here in this podcast. So I want to thank you again uh, for discussing this very important topic of, of the leaky aortic valve. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.